Hi, I'm Russ Camarda, an independent filmmaker and actor in New York, and in between the chances I get to do my creative projects, I love to sit down and talk with other artists to see how it is they do what they do, how they take art and use their craft to reveal truth to an audience. So in this series of conversations, you'll meet some people you may recognize, some people you won't recognize, but they're all independent artists, and we'll get in-depth in a long-form conversation to see how it is they do what they do. Welcome to Art Craft Truth. This time on Art Craft Truth, actor Geneva Carr. Tony nominated actress for her performance in the Broadway play Hand of God. She also has dozens and dozens of television credits from Spin City to Law and Order, Sex in the City, The Good Wife, Blue Bloods, Rescue Me, Person of Interest, on and on and on, to her current starring role in the CBS drama Bull. In this in-depth conversation, she not only reveals what it's like to be a working actress at that high level, but also generously gets personal about the emotional ups and downs along the road of this accomplished career. I hope you enjoy it. Geneva Carr. Well, as long as we can hear each other, that's I, see each other. That's the first rule of, uh, of television. You're also hearing the beeps when I get emails. So okay. You oh, I see. I listen. It's, it, and there's a cat or two that's going to make him do <laughs> Look at him right now. He's looking at himself in the mirror. You're gorgeous. You're gorgeous. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> Well, you know he's going to be on camera, so he's got to check himself out. Yeah, he's like, he's dolled up. <laughs> he's just trying, he's trying to knock artwork off the wall. That's what he does. <laughs> well, this is so cool. Geneva Carr, how are you? I'm, I'm very good. I'm, I'm really flattered that you even asked me to do this. I, I feel like the bar has been raised so high because I listened to other ones. Oh, did you? Woo! Yeah, no, this is got some cool guests, and you came from um, uh, one of our producers and my uh, bestest of friends, Vicky Baum, found you. And uh, But also, I feel like I know you for a long time because my friend of 30 years was your husband in the AT&T spots, Danny Brennan, for a long time. one of my best friends for a long, long time. He and his wife are amazing. For my birthday one year, she made me one of those orange minutes. That's right. Orange minute. Mrs. Hoffman, <laughs> desperate to act after Jane Hoffman. Oh, my. Not Philip Seymour or Dustin, but Jane Hoffman. There he is. Wow. Um, God, so you know Dan. Yeah, I know Dan for many, many years. So that, that's so. I remember when that AT&T uh, campaign came out. And it was like, oh, there's now we know Geneva Carr. So Geneva's always been the... In and around a castrating the... wife, I can pull it off. A castrating mom, <laughs> that's I can right. do it. That's right. I can do it. Don. What? Who wants milky minutes anyway? Besides, they're from last month. They're rollover minutes. They're perfectly good. You know, my sister doesn't have AT&T. Guess what happens to her old minutes? She loses them. She loses them. So I'm sure she'd be happy with those milky minutes. Isn't your sister lactose intolerant? <laughs> Only AT&T's Family Talk with Rollover saves your family's unused minutes. Oh, he was so good. That was a great cat. That was a good, that was, that went for a while, right? That was a long campaign. Well, what's amazing is it actually wasn't a campaign. It wasn't. That's how lucky we were. It was not a campaign. Oh. So we did not get the kind of money that, you know, flow from progressives. But we were all allowed to do other things, okay. which for me was really important. We made very good money, not that kind of money, but great money. I, my apartment in Harlem, I used to say, was the house that AT&T built. <laughs> That's right. And well, now you know, I recently moved, so this is the one that Bull built. Uh, yeah, exactly. And, uh, and I think Dan went on, I think he went on to do Verizon after that. So it was like, wait a minute, how did he? But that was the deal. 
you could so do. did I. I did a Verizon spot. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Isn't that ridiculous? That's awesome. And the sad thing about that, that campaign was based on the family. Why we were never, you know, turned into a spinoff sitcom, I don't I know. know. And- but they switched directors mid-campaign. Uh-huh. And that was their downfall. We had this Frank Todaro, who's a very famous um, commercial director. You probably worked with him. Probably not. He's, <laughs> no, no. He's the best. Okay. And he, they ended up letting him go and going with a movie director. And I remember they called me into one of their offices and said, isn't this guy great? Which means I can't say, I mean, I have right. to say yes. yes. At that point. Hey. So he did the campaign focusing on the sun. Oh, this is Eartha Kitty. Wow. They, they all look like they're wearing eyeshadow. That's impressive. I, well, they're very impressive. I mean, they're designer cats. Look at cats. the eyes on that cat. Wow. Eartha Kit. That's amazing. Cat woman, yeah, am I right? I, exactly. Totally. Huh? Eartha Kitty. I can't believe she's, she's the shy one making an appearance. Good Aww. for you, girl. Um, but they, so they switched it. They focused on the kid. Mm. So number one, kids don't buy right. phone lines. Right, right, right. Do, Not right? family Mom, plans. Yeah, right. And then they also, I remember we were shooting a commercial and we booked six with this guy. And the first commercial we were shooting, he was doing it in a master. Mm. And the kid was really nervous. And I said, I pulled him aside and I said, don't be nervous. Um, These aren't going to air. You (laughs) cannot move someone in a master. Right. It's like, who's in this commercial? There's there's people in there. Wow. The the facial expressions. And and that kid kid went on to do like Adventureland and stuff. Like he did a bunch of stuff too, right? Matt Bush. Matt Bush, yeah. Matt Bush. Yeah. Very successful mm-hmm. group of... Uh, but I remember that. I remember that was a big deal for Dan at the time, and uh, and we all were excited. And so Geneva Carr was part of the uh, vernacular. <laughs> it's like that's his TV wife, his TV wife. So Geneva Carr, let's get started right off the bat. You know how... You've seen a couple of these, right? So you know the deal. Right. We really want to get into like how you do what you do, but we'll go through some fun stuff in your career because you've had some really exciting things happen. Um, oh, aside from that commercial career of AT&T and all the other commercials you did, um, but you've done, you know, tons of guest spots on TV and then uh, a Tony nominee for uh, for Hand to God. And that was just Broadway theater. Just so much stuff to talk about. Um, so let's get started right at the beginning. Where are you from originally? That's an excellent question. And it's a little complicated. Oh, I, was born I, I thought Jackson. that was the easy one. <laughs> no, not with me. Um, born in Jackson, Mississippi, lived there for just a few months. Then we moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, in a nutshell, I lived in 11 states before I graduated from high school. Uh, no, I was not a military brat. Okay. That's Everybody assumes that. Uh, my dad had a hard time holding a job, uh, but he was very charismatic, so he always got hired. Okay. And we moved endlessly. So, for instance, I, we lived in Birmingham, Alabama, for three years, but during that time, I was actually in six different school districts. Oh my God. Because the rest, you know, in New York, we think that everything is like New York City where you apply to get in the school and you take your kid. In in real America, it's wherever you're closest to, that's, that's right. your school. That's right. And so we were always changing schools and moving around. And so mostly Southern, some um, Midwestern. That's why my accent, my parents were from Michigan. So I sound like a newscaster. <laughs> a couple of drinks. I sound like, you know, Marjorie from hand to God. Y'all wouldn't believe. Um, 
so I've moved around a lot. And then I lived in France for several years. Wow. Once I grew up in my early 20s, I lived there for several years. And I still feel like that's a huge part of my personality. So what... Which is the best thing you can ever do for yourself. What does that do to, uh, uh, what do you think that did to your soul and personality all that moving? I mean, that's tough as a kid to, to be, first of all, forget the states, but just the school districts and friends and oh it's got to do different things to you. Do you have siblings? Um, I do. Uh, one is passed on, one is not. Uh, I think two of us, I have two older brothers. Okay. Two of us were not shy at all. We'd land and say, I'm going to go make some friends. We just have a few weeks. We're out of here. Wow. So always, I, I was always surrounded by friends. I always had things to do. I loved that feeling of being popular. And I have a weird name. <laughs> so there was the trauma. And, and also, my parents never warned us. So we'd come home from school. Get in the car. Get in the car. We're leaving. Wow. We never packed. It, we would come home and beacon movers would be packing us. We'd wow. be out of there. So on the one hand... You sure he wasn't was, a bootlegger or something? Like the, the feds were on? <laughs> no, I don't want to get anyone. He has passed on. Okay. Wow. got into a lot of troublesome situations. <laughs> um, not kidding. So th there was a part of it that was utter trauma sure. and painful and sad. And I do have a great story for you later, but... The other side of that coin is I'm not shy. I'm not afraid of a lot of things. And I know that no matter how bumpy the ride gets, I am going to land somewhere. Wow. And I think for an actor, for me personally, that has been great training. I mean, I never was homesick until I went on tour with the Vagina Monologues. Wow. I had never been, you know, I, I just picked up and left. Sure. And I had lived in New York at that time, maybe nine years, and I missed New York. Uh. I love this city. I love the diversity in terms of people and things to do, whatever your interests are, food, just the, the daily interaction with people who are different yeah. is really fulfilling. Well, well, we'll get to your 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 eventual landing uh, pad in New York, but just to stick with this theme for a second. Um, first of all, you're right. Uh, obviously, if if you had that, and I think that's innate. Uh, I don't know what you know the family and parenting thing was like, but you if you had an innate sort of courage and, and, and outward personality that you could handle those kind of moves, that's, that's impressive right away. But it also, that's the whole actor's life. It's just no every day and different every day. And you don't know from one month to the next what's going to happen. So if you had that sort of built in as a kid, that's what an advantage where that comes from. I don't know. Um, but while you're doing this all bouncing around, do you get to did, was acting in your mind? Did you think you wanted to do that? Could you even do it? No, I because my parents were not artistic in nature. They were both very intelligent, very well read. You know, my mother read Agatha Christie every single book three times. You know, that's the kind of thing. They were both crazy about history, but we didn't have a record player. Uh, I wasn't exposed to theater and the arts in, in those terms. I remember when the whole Tony Mishigas happened and on the red carpet, they're like, so when did you love theater? When did you first see the Tony? 
I didn't know what the Tonys were until I was an actor. Wow. I'd never heard of it. Broadway was not even on my radar. I just, it, I wasn't exposed to it. So I came to all of that later in life. Wow. Which sometimes I regret because I wish I'd, you know, read Chekhov and <laughs> knew Shakespeare, but it just didn't work out that way for me. So what were your interests as a kid? What were you thinking about doing? What did you want to do? Did you even think about that stuff? Um, you know, I wanted to escape. And mm. I was always fascinated by foreign cultures. I remember I saw Jules and Jim when I was, I think I was 13, which is a Truffaut movie, a very famous French mm. film that just changed my life. And I knew I had to get to France. Wow. I knew I had to make it there. I knew I wanted to speak the language. And honestly, in high school, that was my goal. Whatever I had to do, I was going to get to France. That's interesting. So so right out of high school, you traveled? Right out of high school, you left? And... No, I actually went to college. I went to Mount Holyoke, uh, which is a, a women's college, the first women's college, actually, in uh, Massachusetts. And then my junior year, I went abroad. And I it was it was everything I expected it to be. Mm. It was really hard, but really fun. And again, I tell young people, learn another language. It makes you understand your own language better. And it's such an interesting way to have to express yourself with a different set of tools. Right. So when you can be funny in another language, you know you speak it well. <laughs> That's right. That's right. So that was, it was my obsession and French film and just, I didn't know what I was going to do in, with French and I really never wanted to teach. So after I graduated college, I came back, finished that year, and then I went back to France and I got an MBA. To do, That's what I ended up doing. And what did you, what, did, what were you going to do in France? What was the... I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there's something about young people, and I say that because I used to be one, <laughs> where you just think you can do everything. Right. And... I don't know that I had a concrete plan, but living in France, being able to navigate that system, I'm the first person to graduate, the first American person, rather, to graduate that French business school. And it's it's the Harvard of France. It's, wow. Out of all the business schools, it's the second top rated. Yes, I'm bragging. I, you you know, I feel like I cheated my way in there. That's a whole <laughs> other story. I think acting skills were always there for moving, um, but I was the first American to graduate. And so there's sort of a high of accomplishing things right. that I hope all young people have, because it makes you try things that past a certain age, we get scared to fail or yeah. we just don't imagine that we'll succeed. But there's a naivete that happens when you're young right. that man, did I have in spades. Right. Well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you one thing that I'm discovering now as, uh, as I passed the, uh, the 50 mark this past, uh, June uh, is that. Congratulations. 50s the 30. Thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm swinging it and I'm hanging in there. So what you, what I discover is that naivete comes back around where you're like, eh, I don't care. <laughs> I totally agree. You, you let go of the fear again, and you're like, "Yeah, whatever happens is happening." I care. Like I failed. I know what it looks like. I'll <laughs> get back. That's right. <laughs> All right. So in France, um, so you're in the business world. I, I read somewhere that uh, it was it was it banking or finance or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it was banking. It was finance. I worked um, in banks there. I did consulting while I was there. 
And then I ended up, you know, following a man, um, uh. which I don't recommend, but look, it worked out. I followed him <laughs> here and we broke up, but I fell in love with New York. Okay. And I followed this Frenchman and he was coming here to do his military service. And I ended up getting my bank to transfer me here to New York, mm. um, which was the greatest thing. Had you ever been to New York before? Was that your first? Oh, and I was terrified. <laughs> sure, it's scary. Oh, it was really scary. It was so scary. It was not what I expected it to be. And um, it's an intimidating city. We, we forget that now that I've been living here for so long. But this is a complete side story. But at the time, my bank sent me to work here on this team. And the team was me and one other guy whom I could not stand. <laughs> this guy woke up thinking about the stock market. And I really didn't. I woke up thinking about when my workday was over and what I could get done. And they had me live with him until I found an apartment, which was, you know, they probably wouldn't let you do that today. Probably Believe not. me, I had no intentions, trust me. Right. Um, but I remember I fell asleep in his apartment watching a movie and he was waking me up and I detested him so much that when he woke me up and I saw him, I just started screaming <laughs> in the middle of a night. <laughs> yeah, they helped me find an apartment. There you that. go. That'll do it. Yeah, that'll do it. So when does, uh, so you come to this big intimidating place, let's get to it. When does show business and acting even enter your thought process? Well, it's, life is full of fate and I made it back to America after having lived in France for several years. A friend of mine had contacted me because she'd gotten my mail at Mount Holyoke at college and said, hey, you have some mail. I want to send it to you. So three year, three and a half year old mail I get. And in it is an invitation to a book signing. A man who had come to do a month long workshop about teaching playwriting to children. Uh, was in it okay. and this man had done a workshop in my high school and he'd written a book and he said you're in it and I'd love for you to come to the book signing now this is three years later and I turn it over and the return address is around the corner for me <laughs> so I contact this guy and he says oh I knew you were going to become an actress and I said, no, I'm a banker, but I just got this invite to the book that you wrote. He wrote, it's Daniel Judas Galar. He is a writer and a teaching associate in schools in the city and actually all over the country. And he wrote this book and we became friendly again and actually very close again. And he took me to see a play at EST, Ensemble Studio Theater. Ensemble Studio Theater is an off-off-Broadway theater in New York City that at the time was in the scariest block of this. I mean, I saw that, a crack vial. I didn't know what it was. I thought it was like a thermos for Barbie. Was that so, the, yeah, right. Was that the, the theater row off of 8th Avenue at that point? Or was that? that no, that's it, right on the corner of 11th Avenue. Oh, yeah, all, right, Street. right. All the way on the west side. Yeah. It was scary. It's much better now. Um, and that's actually the theater that developed uh, Hand to God. Wow. But so I, it takes me to see the show and I, I could not believe it. I, I couldn't get over it because I'd been exposed. I, I had done plays in high school, but I hadn't been exposed to seeing live theater. Mm. The only thing I'd ever seen was Yule Brenner and um, King, uh, King and I. 
Yes, The King and I, which wow. was amazing, but it's a very different theatrical experience. Right. I don't sing, and it was it was wonderful. But when you're in one of these black box theaters in New York, and you're standing 10 feet away from people right. and watching them live, yeah. I just, I'd never seen anything like it. I was just in awe. And I remember at the time, Annie O'Sullivan, who's a terrific actress, was in the show. And afterwards, we got to meet her. Uh. And I remember she got on her bicycle and just cycled away in the city. And I thought, <laughs> God, stars just cycle home. It just seems to, bl- I didn't realize she couldn't afford, you know, a cab ride after doing off-Broadway theater. Right, right. But at the time, it just seemed so glamorous. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's what people don't realize. And I hope once all this nuttiness uh, settles down, people remember what that, if you haven't experienced live theater for folks out there in an audience, and a lot of people aren't growing up with that because of these screens in front of them. Right. That's, that's an energy you can't, you can't manifest. I mean, it's someone is having an, uh, a, a truthful experience in the same room that's that the stakes are so high for that thing that you'd never be next to it's impre- it's no, incredible it's, it's just witnessing it in a very different way it's i know that when we watch a screen we're the fourth wall right but in theater you're part of the performance yeah. that's why every performance is different because on stage you feel them living it with you yeah and as an audience member, I'm sure you, like me, have seen things more than once. It's a totally different experience. Sure. You can feel it a different way because who you see it with matters. Yep. yep. It's, and, and it's also amazing how it can be so personal. Um, Go Back to Where You Are is a show I saw at Playwrights Horizons. Um, God, uh, David Greenspan. Do you know him? No. He is an actor, and I would call him more of a performance artist. Okay. But this particular show was about uh, uh, an angel coming from heaven and helping someone transition in order to earn his place in heaven. And he comes as a woman, as a little old lady to guide people, And but it's played by a guy. That's no great. costumes, no clothes, just mannerisms. Right. And I remember just feeling like it was the most amazing thing and i was on a date one day never no second after this one and i was sobbing because it was just so truthful and he felt nothing and i thought never see you again. <laughs> <laughs> i felt it yeah. and he was like yeah i could tell <laughs> yeah flag number one did you have any empathy for what's happening here okay sociopath yeah, forget it forget it <laughs> all right so um so back to the story of Living in New York and why I became an actor. Yes. EST. I saw another play there. Um, God, I'm going to forget these names. Victor Slezak. Do you know Victor? Are you, you he guessed no. it on Bull last okay. episode. Okay, all right. Um, Suzanne Shepard. She was Camilla's mother in um, The Sopranos. Okay, all oh, right, right, okay. Francis Conroy. Wow. Uh, was in uh, yeah. Six Feet Under. Six Feet Under and everything else. <laughs> everything, Yes. But they were not known to the degree they to the degree they were now, nor were they anybody to me. Right. But again at EST, I go see the show. It's in their tinier space. There are literally seven, eight people in the audience. I see these people, and it's about a man putting his wife in a mental institution. Lady on a high wire is mm. called. And Suzanne Shepard plays the crazy woman there, making this man understand that this is where his wife has to be. Or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're talking about 20 years ago. I'm not really sure what it was about. But all I know is that 
that was the impetus in me that I had to do what they were doing because they were so truthful and empathetic and it gave witness. I mean, in, in my life, my dad spent a lot of time in mental institutions and it, in, in life, we don't share these things sure. in the same way. So I've never said that. But when I saw these people figuring out what the answer was, why they were feeling that way, why release guilt, it just broke something open in me mm. that I wanted to give that kind of witness to people. Well, I'll tell you, you couldn't have explained the job of the artist any clearer <laughs> than that because if anybody wonders what we do or what we're trying to do that's the whole point is to present something truthfully in sometimes painful sometimes but in a safe environment Mm. so that other humans can see it hear it feel it empathize with it without having to you know suffer the the slings and arrows of it you know and that's what that's what we're trying to do and, that, and yeah. so, so that moment inspired you to do that. Yeah. So from that, from walking out of that theater with that feeling in your soul and heart, what's your steps? What did you do? I took a beginning acting class with an actor and playwright and teacher named Chris Arasso. And it was the kind of acting where, oh, you're holding the coffee. <laughs> it's too hard to touch. Uh, And he was wonderful. The class was wonderful. And he pulled me aside and said, why are you here? And I said, what what do you mean? I'm a banker. I just thought I would consider this. And he said, I don't think you need to be here. You know the coffee's hot. Because it's all all pretend. I, I read all the Stanislavski books. And for people who do care about technique, to me, if I had to boil it down, Stanislavski is pretending. Mm. Where uh, other people are reacting, Stanislav is you pretend the coffee's hot, you pretend you're a child, you pretend you're a soldier, whatever. So he recommended I take a class for professionals with Jane Hoffman, hence Hoffman. (laughs) Right. So I take a class with Jane Hoffman. Um, She's brutal. She was uh, an actress and a director. And I say this with so much love, a notorious bitch uh she was really critical and uh so she was trying to teach us how to act and we're doing what we're doing and of course my ego's already been fed that i don't need to smell the coffee i know what i'm doing so i'm doing a monologue from uh marcia norman getting out and it's a monologue about it's it's a play about a woman who finds herself in prison after prostitution and stealing and you know, after my trials and tribulations as a child, I feel like I understand it and she's Southern and I have the accent down, I can cry on cue and I am not impressing this teacher. And Jane finds nothing but fault in my performance. And I'm frustrated, I'm like, God, I'm crying. That girl can't even break a tear. (laughs) And she's trying to explain to me that it's living in the moment, it's living in the moment. And I couldn't understand it. Well, this is what Jane did to me. I'm in the class, you know, doing my monologue. I think I'm wonderful. And she snuck up behind me so that I couldn't see. <laughs> she slapped me in the back of the head. Wow. And I was so upset as, you know, trying to please, thinking of, uh, uh, I was so upset. And she said, act, act, 
do the monologue. Do it. So I, I just do the monologue. And at the end of it, she said, you're welcome. Wow. That was living in the moment. And I explain it to people that that was like Helen Keller. Yeah. And Sullivan is if doing the letters W and I just can't get it. I, and I finally understand that you do the preparation, you work on the accent, you, you know, but if you're living it yeah. and it's authentic. Yeah. It, yeah. No preparation is uh, it, it. It's, it's exactly that, but acting's a verb, you know, and so you, you, you hope you, you hope you did all your stuff, but once you get out there to do it, you just do it. Yes. You know, and, and until you get that, it's, it's, you can be told a bunch of times, right? but I finally got it after weeks or months or whatever, studying with her. She ended up becoming one of my closest friends wow. ever. I, you know, helped her uh, to transition into the actor's home in Los Angeles. Wow. Sadly, she's no longer with us. So that's, I've, I've discussed that with a lot of different people. There's always that one mentor, that one teacher, that one experience that kind of turns the corner on your craft. And, uh, and for you, it was her. And understanding that the, it's, it's about, it's preparing yourself with all the, the, the technical things you have to do as an actor, but then dealing with the moment, moment to moment in front of you, truthfully, that's where the character comes from. That's where the emotions come from. That's where all this, the, the, the real stuff comes from. And it's one thing to do it. It's hard to do it for a monologue or a soliloquy because there's a lot of stuff uh, you need to generate, you know, that's not there. Um, yeah. But your performance is usually easier when you know, there's somebody else because that's where the performance is, is, is in that other person. So you can, you can make that work. Another thing Jane used to say was whenever you're acting with someone, do everything you can to make that person look good. <laughs> and that's how you look good. Interesting. Just make them shine. That's how you shine. Yeah. I guess another way to look at that, because I've always felt that the thing that pulls you out of it is once you start getting in into your head and you start judging things, that's when you're, that's when you pull yourself out of the piece. That's when you drop lines. That's when you, but to get yourself back in, it's always the other person. Once you focus your attention and your intention and what you're trying to get out of what's in front of you, that's, that's where the piece comes alive. And now you're not in yourself anymore. You're just kind of in the piece with it. So um, great advice. So after that experience, are you starting to try and get in shows and things? Or are you starting to? Yeah, I ended up quitting banking wow. and no, for, uh, like, time out, time out. That's a yeah. big, that's a big one. Cause you're in New York city, you know, with a banking job and you're like, you know what? I'm going to be an actor. Like, what is that about? Well, it's talk about naivete. I had no idea how hard it was going to be, <laughs> how hard it was going to be financially, how hard it was going to be emotionally. I mean, I went from, you know, living in the West Village to living in, you know, a closet. Right. Uh, literally. I mean, literally, my dressing room on set is the size of my first studio apartment oh and it's teeny tiny. Um, but there is something that... If you know what you want, for me personally, I can withstand a lot. Mm. And I think that's a good thing to know, that if you really want something, that's why if you don't really want to do this, I mean, young people, you have to be willing to suffer 
and it's not suffering for the sake of suffering and how great you are, but it is going to cost you. It's yeah. going to cost you relationships. It's going to cost you money. It's going to cost you years. It's, it's going to cost you things that are valuable. And so you have to decide what the most value right. is. So I did quit banking having really no idea how challenging it was going to be, but I was also sneaky. <laughs> um, I quit the job that I was doing and I ended up taking a job for a French brokerage firm because, you know, by noon my boss was gone because of the time change. Okay, there you go. So I was present and then in the afternoon I would audition, I would take classes, I would do whatever I can to make the next opportunity happen while he thought I was working and then I would come back at night to finish my job because it was an American bank. That's awesome. One desk. And I'd say, oh, I have a meeting. And I just was sneaking that. So I, you know, backstage, people yeah. ask me how I did it because I didn't know how to get an agent. I didn't go to a fancy school. I didn't go to any kind of school. Right. So how I did it was I went to things like backstage looking for auditions. Um, I also found a community of people. This is really important for people who want to get into business. Find a community of people where you can network. Right. And I think for an actor, it's where can you act? And for me at that time, EST was the place that I had found. So I went back to EST and I found other people who were starting, other people who are creative. I worked with new writers, young writers. It's how I met Rob Askins uh, and did Hand to God. I did many other shows there, but it led to other things right. theatrically. Right. Um, the other thing I did personally is I really wanted to do commercials. It, it, at the time, Why? I didn't know. Why did you want to do that? Just for, just for the cash or for the, you know, because it was lucrative or because it seemed fun or um, what was it? The, is, it is. It can be lucrative. It is less the, lucrative today. Right. Yeah, that's for um, sure. I couldn't afford to go to college and I thought that it would be good film training. Hmm. Okay. And it ended up being the best training. Sure. Because a, a true commercial is a 30 second movie about, you know, a woman trying to impart the knowledge of a dollar, you know, the value of a dollar to her sons, right. just because it happens to be about AT&T phone service. It, it could be about anything. Right. For me, I was never selling AT&T and I never had to do hard sell, but I had to tell my children how important a dollar was. Right. I right. had to shame my husband for wasting his money, <laughs> teach him a lesson, you know, right. so playing action. You're playing to... your actions. Yeah. And it, for, that's why I wanted to do it. And that ended up being the greatest way to learn my craft. And I, I'm not afraid to look in a camera lens. Right. Um, to me, it's just, and, and maybe to my detriment, I never think about the lens. I know that there's that Michael Caine video. I don't, look, I don't even think about the lens. Right. The lens is just some, you know, stalker. Over there. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> And the thing about commercials, the, what the great training it is, is the speed at which mm. it's a different pace altogether. If you can do that, you know, you can pretty much transition into film and television for a while. You ask Dan. They gave, us, they gave us lines. I mean, I would be in the middle of doing one of long-winded commercials, and they'd say, has anybody given the lines for the next one? And on set, I'd have to do this. Wow. Yeah. It was so intimidating. It was... 
truthfully, they were incredibly unfair and unappreciative. Sure. But boy, did I learn. Yeah. And none of the kids, you know, the, the three people I was working with in that family, none of them could help me except <laughs> feel for me. But sometimes that's a big help. Yeah. You yeah. know, other actors that feel for you. It's and and the, the the trials of that kind of thing, it's the metaphorical slap to the head that you got in the class. I mean it's the same it's the same thing. <laughs> Learn your lines. Okay. A- I got I <laughs> So all right, so yeah, so let's go back. So you're thinking you want to do commercials and you're and you're for people who don't know, backstage was now it's online, I guess, but it used to be a newspaper where you'd. Is it online? I get. I mean, maybe it's still a newspaper. I haven't looked at backstage in a while, but it's it's all. A couple of years ago, I did uh, conferences for them. Oh yeah. Do I need another light? My light it no, turned off. No, you're fine. You, you, your lighting's okay. good. Your lighting's good. I like the I like the practicals in the background. We're, we're, it all looks good. I tried. <laughs> the set design is oh. awesome. Um, uh, yeah, it's, it's sort of production design, New York hip i like it i dig it uh, yeah, New York. <laughs> um so what so what are the first jobs you're getting where it's a job job did like did you you said you didn't know how to get an agent how did you eventually kind of transition into being an actor I who, without an agent for about a decade yeah i, I don't have an agent now so <laughs> I've, you know. um i'm gonna tell you another secret that you already know agents don't get you work as much as negotiate the work you get yourself. Right, true. And, you know, hand to God was not at all through my agency. Going to Broadway had nothing to do with them. Mm. Um, my first 10 national commercials did not come through an agency. I, that, I will say that, yeah, agents get you work. Sure. I'm not saying they don't. However, when actors, a lot of actors like, oh, I said, get an agent. You know, the truth is you have to create work. And so my first TV gig I got because I had, I was doing a show at EST. Again, EST, my God, EST's followed me forever. <laughs> um, what is her name? You're going to know. I can't believe I'm forgetting her name. Uh, God, she cast, uh, this is this is like charades. The show with Michael J. Fox, what was that show? Oh, Spin City. Yes, Spin City was my first job. Okay. And I'm blanking on the name of the woman who cast it. I can't believe I'm doing that. It'll come to me. Does it come to you? No, it's not coming to me. I don't remember. Well, great, because it's it's not the nicest thing I'm saying. That's all right. So I got, I got a general. What agents do for you, if anybody who's new is watching, agents often get you something called a general audition. And at a general audition, you get to meet a casting director. Sometimes you have to do a monologue, which I pray to God you don't, because I think they're a terrible test of skill. Sure. Um, but I, I met this casting director, and I was so nervous, and I was wearing a suit, because as a banker, I thought that's what you wore. <laughs> and I remember my agent saw me afterwards and said, what the heck? You look old. What are you dressing like that for? <laughs> oh, God, I'm so sorry. So maybe two and a half years later, I never got an audition with that woman. I was doing a show at EST, a showcase, and I guess one of her assistants saw it, and so I was given another general with her. And when I walked into the room, she said, I don't know why you're here. We've already met. I know who you are. Because I had made no kind of an impression. And I said, thank you so much for giving me a second chance. It really speaks volumes about you. (laughs) knowing that people can grow and change and I'm a better actor since I last met you. And she said, Oh, 
uh, I mean, you kind of have to say you're welcome after that. <laughs> right. And she said, what are you better at? And I said, everything. Give me some sides. And I read for that show. Uh. And all she said afterwards for Spin City, she said, how tall are you really? <laughs> I, I look taller than I am. And that's what I said. And I said, I'm five, two and three quarters, but I look five. Three. Um, and I got that job. Yeah. For, my, for Michael J. Fox, I, they needed to know that really clearly. They needed to know that. And so that was my first TV gig. And it was amazing because wow. he is, he's a workhorse, but he is one of the kindest people in the business. Mm. And that was a great experience to see TV because you and I both know it's not always no. like that. No, 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 it's no. not always fun. You know, you come in, I had one sentence. I don't even remember what it was. It was like, oh my gosh, you're here. Yeah, and that right. was it. Right. And, you know. So do you find yourself then in sort of the the loop of the business where you're kind of going from thing to thing, where you're, you're starting to get uh, auditions because now the casting directors are, are paying attention to you? And when do you start getting into this sort of guest spot thing where you're, you're really, we're seeing you in, in things. We're seeing you in all these TV shows and whatnot. Or does that take a while? You know, as every actor knows, it really ebbs and flows. Yeah. I remember at the height of auditioning, I one day had 10 auditions in one day. Wow. And you couldn't possibly make that happen in New York. I mean, in, in Los Angeles. No, in Los Angeles, forget Yeah. Because in New York, I was like, I'm going to go to Beth Melsky, which is commercials. I'm going to pop over this one for that. I'm going to head up to Times Square and get to James Caleri. I'm going <laughs> You, you could do that kind of a thing wow. and you could time it just right. And I think because I did, I did uh, commercials and legit, mm -hmm. you know, which is TV, which is TV and, and film. And film. Right. Um, I, voiceovers came later in my career. I, I think I just, again, telling actors, sometimes actors have this thing that commercials are easy or stupid or not important. And, you know, if that's how you feel, that's great. But I know that there are phenomenal performances in commercials. I mean, your friend Dan and I yes. are a sitcom husband and wife. Absolutely. You know, everybody loves Raymond. What about the AT&T family? <laughs> that's right. You guys were great. But that because we were actors who took it seriously. That's why we booked like crazy. And you, you do get on, you get on a roll of opportunity. And apparently they say that for every time you book a job, you are called back either 50 to 100 times. Is that right? They say statistically okay. that's true. So Well, yeah, it's that, it's that proof of concept. You know, the, the whole business wants to not be the first one. So if, you're, if you're, somebody hired you, <laughs> then everybody else will jump on board. So you got to get that first one yes. or two. Yes. I was just watching this thing this morning about rent. And they were talking about the original production and how, you know, these people were nobodies. I bet they weren't. <laughs> right. I bet they weren't known buddies. Right. But I don't believe they were, you know, brand new to the business. No. Yeah. I really doubt that because New York is full of people who've been working 20 years for their big break. Yeah. And, you know, I'm proof that it does happen and it does, you know, happen after 40, which yeah. is... Well, let's 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 we'll bounce we'll bounce around again. That I say this a lot. We'll bounce around the timeline, but let's since we're on that, let's segue to that. Let's talk about your big break. Was you rearranging furniture? That's awesome. Um, does she play? <laughs> does she play the piano? Because that's uh, 
Look at that. That's awesome. Um, so what was your question? So, about yeah. So now break? we're going we're to get to, yeah, right. We're going to get to the big break before the cat breaks the thing there. Um, was it, uh, so you're doing, you're going, you're making the rounds doing commercial stuff and theater is always in. It's I'm doing hot. TV stuff. I'm, I'm doing a lot of commercial stuff. I'm, I'm getting my, you know, periodic guest stars. I've done every single law and order. <laughs> I've done them more than once. I, the ones that didn't even end up working out, you know, um, and theater, I, one of my first jobs ever was a Chris Durang play. And that's a, a great story, but I couldn't, I couldn't get a break in a theater. It was very difficult um, because theater is very tight, very snobby. I mean, I hate to say it, but they're the kind of people that think commercials aren't real work. Right. <laughs> and so I often got second-class treatment by some of my theater friends. I hate to say it, mm. but they didn't think I was a serious enough actress or you do commercials. I remember I was doing uh, a play regionally and they were talking to the cast about moving to Broadway. And one of the actors whom I dearly love, and that's fine, he was like, well, we all want to do it, but Geneva's commercials. Does she want to go to Broadway? And it was like a dagger in my heart. Wow. Um, and it was so I did feel a lot of resistance, to be honest, that I just I I couldn't get in the big doors. Um, it was tough. I wonder if it's still like I, I wonder if it's still like that, the way the environment and just the way media and everything is different, if there's still this sort of theater snobbery. Well, I, I don't think there is. It's going to be a problem for theater and for film and television and, and we both know it is that you have to fill seats so it's why they often go with a celebrity sure. who may not be perfect for the role I, I went in to audition for something at um, on, on Broadway for MTC and a friend of mine was the reader actually it was a friend of mine's girlfriend and she told him that after my audition they were like oh my gosh she's incredible and then after the celebrities audition, the casting director turned to the team and said, she's not the best, but this wasn't her best work, but she's wonderful. And I did go see her in Broadway and she was absolutely wonderful. Sure. I'm not saying she wasn't terrific, but they do often have to make those choices. It, and is, it, is, show, it is show business, you know, so you gotta, gotta fill the seats. All right, so so yeah. so when did so did the doors open at some point? These big doors. Well, the the way the door opened is a very roundabout way. Again, I was doing a showcase at EST of Hand to God. So Rob Askins, who is an incredible playwright and now a television writer, uh, wrote a play for Stephen Boyer and myself. Um, he wanted to do a play about a mother and a son. He liked us both, and he came up with Hand to God. And we did half a dozen readings of this. And I remember we had Maritz as our director for that sixth reading, and I knew we had magic because Maritz is the kind of director that he will sacrifice a laugh to tell a story. Mm. So it was less slapsticky but more meaningful. Right. And 
we ended up, that show was a showcase. And then it was a mini contract at an off-off-Broadway theater. Then it went to off-Broadway at MCC. And then we went to Broadway. So my way of getting to Broadway was through a very roundabout way that our producer, Kevin McCullough at MCC, just stuck with the team. Well, let's let's take a, a tangent here just for a, to go back to a point you made earlier, which is, and this is really important. He wrote that for you. He wrote that with you in mind uh, and Stephen Boyer. So the the idea of keeping increasing your circles and always uh, what you called it before is this network of people being people of like mind, regardless of what tier in the business you're on, but always never burning bridges and always kind of in increasing this sphere of artists that you're with. And being good and doing the work and, and, and being reliable and doing well, when those things happen, he's thinking of you. And that, that story becomes more complicated <laughs> because I was released when they were moving. Ah. I was called by the director. You're amazing. You've added so much to this. We would not be moving, but we're going to have to move on without you. I was never given an answer as to why that was, but I'm smart enough to know they probably had an offer out to someone who's going to bring in seats, sure. you know, bring in people to seats. And I, of course, it hurt me, but I remember at the time, and this is how I truly felt, and I was so grateful for the opportunity to have done what I had done up to that point and developed this character. And I said, I get it. I am so happy for you. I will come see you and I will always support this show. And I don't know what happened, but the director called me. You know, I don't know when the decision was made weeks later. It was midnight. I was in bed and I got a phone call. I'm usually, I don't pick up the phone. And it was Moritz von Stuppenagel, our director, to say, you're in. Wow. So you never know what happens behind closed doors. Right. I, I'm going to tell another story story about that that I, I think is revealing that so often it's not about you you know most of the and, time <laughs> yeah but what do you mean some, most all the time the truth is that you know celebrity matters celebrity matters in terms of people desperate to make their nut you know tiny theaters have to make their nut yeah. and I get that and that is what happened. And another time this happened, and I feel, you know, so the first job that I ever had where I got my equity card was at Playwrights Horizons. It was a very small role. It was uh, Chris Durang. I had met Chris Durang at a party, at a Christmas party. And every time I was laughing, I felt him looking at me. <laughs> and I thought, I think he's gay. I, I don't think he's interested in me. I think he's gay at me. And I got a phone call a few days later saying, hey, Chris wrote a play. Would you consider doing a reading of it? Wow. And I did a reading of this play where I was a laugh track. <laughs> so I have a really loud kind of laugh. So I was a laugh track. In the end, they were not able to use me. So I got a phone call from Chris. What I do appreciate, which doesn't always happen, is Chris called me himself and said, we are unable to use you. Um, they're going to go forward uh, with someone else. 
uh, they need someone with more credits and I'm so sorry. Mm. I again was like, gosh, thanks so much. I did a bunch of readings. I learned, I met a bunch of famous people. And then I got a phone call that they were having trouble casting the role. Mm. Would I come in? I booked it. And it's a thing that people will remember you when you don't know. Yeah. I mean, you just said it earlier, do your work, be reliable, be a good person. Yeah. Because in theater, television and film, karma absolutely exists. Oh, no question. Is it brutal? Yes. And, and the, the thing about it is, aside from the celebrity part of it, where you, get, where you know you're going to hopefully make some money off of having someone in your thing and fill seats. Besides all that, as, when you're talking about talent, and we've had this conversation on the podcast before, there, there's a strata where it's, you know, really talented, really shitty, and then everybody else is really good, but it's a gray area. So in that, most of, the pe most of us exist, you know? And if you can stand out by just being a human being that's reliable and, and uh, a little bit effervescent, a little bit encouraging, a little bit, you know, removing the ego and knowing that you're just part of the, the flow of things... You know, whether they know it consciously or not, they'll remember you for that. And, oh, yes. And they'll want to work with you. I, do I want to be on, a, on set with Geneva for 12 hours? Yeah. Or do I want to be on set with this one for 12? You know what I mean? So that's a whole big part of it. So increasing your circles, increasing your networks, and in those networks, being a good person. <laughs> and, a, and a, you know, and, and the, the breaks tend to kind of come your way that way. So... Your your show that you're in that was written with you in mind that's in development that goes off off to off, and now they're going to move it to Broadway and they're, it's like Geneva we're going to sorry but we got to go a different way we got to put the the name in there, and then you get the call at midnight that says you're in. What's that feeling like? What is that moment like when you know <laughs> you're going to Broadway? The truth is when you let go of something, and I was happy for my friends. I was thrilled for my friends. It's, it's euphoric. <laughs> and this particular show, I mean, this is our Barbara Walters moment because I'm, I'm going to cry. <laughs> it, it changed my life on so many levels. I couldn't even begin to tell you. The actors that I worked with, I would give a kidney to. It's mm -hmm. because we had, we were off on off of Broadway there were a group of actors. Not everybody got to move to off-Broadway, but everybody off-Broadway got to move to Broadway. And these actors, they're still in my life. They will always be in my life. But the fact that we battled that out, and it is hard to go to Broadway with no names. Mm -hmm. uh, and I remember one of our ads said, you know, nobody's famous in this show. Pray for us. Because it was hand to God, get it? No celebrities, <laughs> pray for that's us. That's awesome. And we're all working. You yeah. know, Maritz has gone to Broadway a couple of times since then. Um, Sarah Stiles just got a show, The Crew on Netflix. Mm. Um, I've been working yeah. consistently in Bowl. Um, Stephen has worked in numerous projects. He had a show with John Lithgow, and he's oh. been on Broadway. But those actors, the fact that they were such hard workers and just willing to take a bullet for each other. Yeah. He worked so hard off Broadway. Our lines changed every single night. 
the first 10 performances, our lines were changing. Whoa. Broadway, first 10 performances, our lines were changing. <laughs> My God, we worked so hard. But that play just touched so many people in ways we didn't anticipate. And the fact that five of us were nominated for Tony. Yeah. Well, yeah. Five, nobody's got nominated was huge. And, and people say, oh, you didn't win. Hey. Uh, losing to Helen Mirren, big fat win in my book. <laughs> That's right. So let's talk about. I'll take it. I'll take yeah. it. I'm walking around with I lost to Helen Mirren win. I'll, I want to get to that, but that, but but just to stick with the idea of that championship moment there. First of all, what was the theater? Where did you open? Where did you go on Broadway? Do you remember in the theater? Which one? No, it's the tiny one. Um, not. Oh, Lucy, God. Lucille Lortel or uh, no? Because that's that's off Broadway. That's oh, what that's we off, did it right, off Broadway. Yeah, that's when you did um, off Broadway. God, you're embarrassing me. This is so sad. Well, anyway, uh, on 45th Street, when, I can't remember. When you, anyway, when you walk in to this moment, and I, I love asking this question, what I mean, are you all? Did you all show up together? Like, hey, we did it together, you know? Or or is it? Is there an individual Broadway moment when those lights come on and it's Broadway? We did it together. Yeah. I think that's why it was an even more poignant thing to have happen in my life because I wasn't alone, Fred. Mm. We were all together in disbelief that this had happened. <laughs> I mean, other a couple of the other actors had been to Broadway, but for several of us, it was the first time for the director. It was the first time for the playwright. It was the first time. And knowing that people were taking a chance on us, we arrived together and it was, I mean, it was profound to share it yeah. to every, like our first performance was, we just couldn't believe that we had fooled the world, that it had happened, <laughs> that we'd been given a break. Right. You know, several of us had been working for years yeah. and to finally get this kind of a break and to have it happen together was, it was, it was like having a baby with someone. Well, it's so unusual for a group of, of undiscovered so-called so talents that all get up in the same piece like that for Broadway. That's, yeah. It's usually, you know, it's one person or it's another, but for everybody. Um, so just for people who don't, uh, who aren't familiar, this is a, very clever piece hand to god just describe it quickly it's this is with a puppet and the whole thing right so it is hand to god is a play about a mother and a son who live in texas the father has passed away her son's having problems in school and in order to find solace she goes to the church and a preacher there helps her create a christian puppet ministry for teens and so she creates this ministry for you know, kids with hand puppets and her son is either acting out or possessed by the devil. And it's up to you to decide. Okay. There is uh, an inappropriate relationship that she has with one of the students. Her son has his sexual awakening through a hand puppet. <laughs> and it's, there is so much pain in the play about grief how we close each other off and in the end they find each other mm. the mother and the son and are able to move forward and it is so profound and so funny yeah that i just it's hard to even we had people faint 
on numerous occasions. Really? Because it was very violent. Mm. Yeah, there, the, the, there was some graphic sex. There were, I didn't even know what a tossed salad was until he to God. I, yeah, I was like, what is that? And they're like, oh, Geneva, don't even ask. Um, there was some really violent moments because my son ends up having to remove the puppet. Mm. And because the puppet feels a part of him, he has to do damage. Mm. And... I, in turn, get injured. It was wow. at one point in, in one of the shows, I actually slipped on a telephone cord on stage and hit my head and blacked out. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was really scary. And the, so the, the stage manager has us on camera so he can see. And apparently I flew in the air like a flying squirrel, landed oh. flat. Stephen, who plays my son, thought that I had broken my kneecaps. Oh, my God. I come to in under 30 seconds and I realize I, I had, I'd been holding a body part because something happens in the play. Right. And I see just as that body part, it's a finger, rolls off the stage. And suddenly I realize where I am. So I just start moaning in pain and we're back on. Wow. It was, and the stage manager said I was waiting to see if I was going to bring the curtain down. Oh and God. afterwards, friends of mine in the audience said that choreography was so good because <laughs> I just flew in there. Um, but theater's live. Yeah, and you no just kidding. Go God, I was in the best shape of my life. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, just crazy because for a bigger stage when we transferred to a bigger stage we had to adapt some things because performing for 74 to then 200 to then 900 is different yes yeah i can hear you okay can you see me okay yeah okay yeah yours yours is a little i can hear I, you. i really appreciate the shirt oh yeah yeah that's my uh, i'm a huge boxing fan so every time i I do these. I try and represent somebody that. Uh, and I thought it was for both. But yeah, well, it's that. It's a double entendre. It's uh, it's, it's both. I get. I they say that. That's improv. Yeah, that's right. I, I try and give you a little little both. Um, so, at what point during this thing do you know it's kind of a hit? And it's kind of critically like, like, are, is, is this the classic um, that we see things in the movies all the time? Is this the classic where you're all sitting around waiting for the times to come out at four in the morning? I mean, when do you, when do you know? Yes. I, I if anyone says that's not true, every single performance, you wait up until midnight to see if you've made the times. Wow. You absolutely do. Um, and we waited with bated breath off of, off and on Broadway to see what it was. And there's tears and hugging and champagne if you're playing your cards right because you just can't believe it. You just can't believe it. And it happens during the opening night party. So they say about an opening night party, you're waiting for the times. And if the times isn't good, that party's going to wrap up about 1210. <laughs> but if it's good, you're going to hang around until about 130. Wow. <laughs> So does somebody does somebody read it? Who gets who who gets that job? Uh, the artist director of an off Broadway theater or the producer um, when you're on Broadway, and it's it's literally you know in a chair, everybody's got a champagne glass, and you just you're you know it's good if he's reading it aloud because they read it first to protect everybody. Right. <laughs> 
Wow. And there are dangers in reading it. And a lot of actors will tell you about that because they might say, oh, God, the way you know, ran his fingers through his hair, we just loved it. And then you'll never do that gesture again without either being worried it's good enough or being worried it's terrible. Right, right. So I do actors that have read it. Um, I'm going to admit I read them. I shouldn't, but I do. <laughs> so, all right. So let's continue on this track before we get to, to the big uh, uh, television gig that you got now, which is pretty cool. But uh, so when does the buzz start happening about Tonys and awards and things like what when does that start creeping in where it's even a possibility um it does start creeping in and in our show we felt very sure that our playwright and Stephen Boyer was going to be nominated and I think to a certain degree they were it was more difficult when people say things like, oh, my God, you're going to get nominated for a Tony because there's huge pressure. People were not saying that to me um, I, in a way that was good. I mean, it, it, I didn't feel the pressure of it. There was one uh, reviewer that said, you know, the dark horse in the Tonys is Geneva Carr, if she'll pull it off, you know, that kind of a thing. But it was very rare. But I know that the playwright and the main actor, they went on stage with, I need to be good enough to get the Tony. Mm -hmm. And I never did. I got to go on stage saying, God, this is so exciting. Look at all these people. This is amazing. <laughs> and I remember our producer, Kevin McCullough, came in my dressing room one night and said, um, I, I know you're feeling a lot of pressure about the Tonys. And, and I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not feeling any pressure about the Tonys. And he said, well, Steven is. And I said, yeah, I know Steven's going to get nominated, but I'm not. I mean, I'm a nobody. And he said, well, I just want to make sure you're not feeling pressure. And I was like, I'm not feeling any pressure. And then... The day before the announcements, so you're, the announcement happens on a Wednesday morning, or does it happen on a Tuesday and then you do interviews on Wednesday? I think mm. it happens on it happens on a Tuesday, and then Wednesday you have interviews, or or possibly Wednesday. I'm having trouble remembering, but the night before that happened, the stage manager came into my dressing room and said, "I need to talk to you about Tony nominations." And he said, oh, yeah, because it does happen Wednesday morning at around 8 a.m. And so he said, I want to prepare you that if you are nominated, you go into interviews that morning and you have a bunch of interviews and then you have a matinee and then you do another show that night because it's a Wednesday. And he said, I wanted to warn you so that you have a couple of outfits picked out. And I remember saying to him, I think this is really shitty of you to do to me when I'm just going to have a good show, I'm not getting a Tony nomination. So are you trying to get my hopes up? Because it's not kind. Okay. I, I really took it the wrong way because I hadn't heard any of that. And, you know, production hadn't done any kind of a push. I wasn't going to events or anything. And Wednesday morning, I was not watching, but at the time I was married and my husband was watching and he starts shrieking in the other room, which for a Japanese man is very rare. So I was like, what happened? And he was shrieking and I got nominated and it was, 
insane. I'll bet it was insane. It was, it was screaming. Also because there had been many other award seasons with this show and I had never been noticed. Mm. And it's that thing of, I always felt like it was just, it, it wasn't in the cards. I wasn't notice worthy. I never, I, I, or maybe the part wasn't big enough. You know, unfortunately, as an actor, you often take it upon yourself. So, of course, I thought I'm not good enough. I'm not young enough. I'm not pretty enough. Whatever I thought it was. I'm not talented enough. I, I it just, it was an utter shock. Wow. And that, that is better than anything. I feel badly for the people who are warned about it and they prepare because, again, I had a dress, took it, you know, I had not picked out a dress, but I'm, you know, I have enough clothes to, you know, open a shop. <laughs> so I had something to wear and I show up at these interviews and because I was so completely unprepared, they actually went great. Sure. That's usually how it works, right? <laughs> Isn't that, I mean, I, I, I just was living my best life and saying anything and, and thanking the people that I really felt like thanking. Right. And it was, it was surprisingly easy. First of all, the other thing you need to know, when you're nominated, everybody's nice to you. And <laughs> when you're nominated as the nobody and the dark horse, I mean, I shouldn't say that, but when I went on the Tony line the night of, you know, you have a matinee and then you have to get changed right into the outfit and go. Wow. Still, with, you know, your flop swept from performing that wow, afternoon. Wow, really? Oh, it's it's so intense and so fast that you have to get ready. And especially for the women, you know, you, you do your makeup before the show. You come back, they slap on the makeup. Um, craziness is the woman who does my makeup now as a favor, did my makeup for the Tonys. Wow. She had done me in a movie and I called her and she was like, I'll come in. So I, I go to do the lineup. You, you go through this gazebo of interviews and I cannot tell you how many interviewers after the camera was off said, we're pinning our hopes on you. You're oh. our girl. And there was something about being the New Yorker, the unknown, just the nobody. Um, I, this is embarrassing to say, but I got about 800 messages the day I won. Kids <laughs> I had babysat, people I hadn't spoken to since grammar school. Wow. And that's the amazing thing that social media allowed. People that would have no other way of contacting me, the amount of goodwill I felt right. was just... Well, I, uh, I was going to ask you that question because you, you mentioned earlier about when you guys went to Broadway, it was the idea of sharing it. And, and there's something about, like that movie Into the Wild, there's something about a life worth living is the one that you can share. It's, it's not worth it if you can't share it. So you're married at the time, so obviously you have a, a spouse. But is there family? Is there, I mean, like who, who gets to enjoy this news with you? And, and is that part of the experience? Um, God, I'm going to say something that I really shouldn't say. Um, my husband couldn't share in it. So this is terrible, but my marriage ended. In, in this whole period at that whole time? Oh, okay. A week before the Tonys. Wow. wow. I've never ever said it because when it happened, uh, the group of actors that I was working with and production, particularly Kevin, our, our producer, had my back mm. and said, this isn't the first time. It was, 
it was very hard for my husband. He sure. could not share in it. Um, he, he is a very talented architect who craves recognition. Sure. And he couldn't take it, and he walked out. Wow. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's another thing. That's very brave of you to say, and it's, it's. I'm not embarrassed a- to say it. I've never. I mean, I couldn't even tell my friends at the time. I waited about a month after the Tonys. But it's not unusual, particularly for men who, who aren't used to a spouse in the industry. It's a, our, what we do is very. It's different for civilians, you know, and uh, and particularly, I think men sometimes don't understand and, and can't handle some of that stuff sometimes and it's, di- or it's difficult i should say so that's i'm sure there's a zillion other things involved but that's but that's a i can i can see no there are no zillion it was one thing <laughs> wow. no, I'm, I'm kidding you it was um i was i'd only been married a year mm. and it was something that I, I think that you learn who your friends are sure when things are unbearable or when they're amazing yeah and so to credit that crew, Maritz, Rob, Steve, Sarah, Michael, it just, it's unbelievable. First of all, because I, I couldn't miss. I mean, mm. I called the producer and um, he was nothing but supportive. And he said, this happens. It's not the first time. It is sometimes hard for a partner to be really happy. And it it was i had to go on yeah. and i mean i'm saying it now it's you know this happened in 2015 yeah and it's still i will tell you i don't think i got over it until quarantine wow and over it you never get over it but sure. i can talk about it without sobbing right 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 uh quarantine was an interesting time for self-reflection yes and forgiveness. yes indeed um but i did that show every single night with those people and the fact that I had to get on stage and share something so important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Barbara. No, it's okay. Um, (laughs) But I I had to tell that story every single night and it was a really painful story about loss. Yeah. And, you know, I know that the show is about technique as well. And, some people believe in substitution where you think, oh, my God, I'm so sad. My marriage is over because of this. And, oh, I'm so happy I got nominated for this Tony. Um, and then there are other people that use imagination. And to have all of those things coalesce and to have a group of actors on stage who they were the only people I told. I didn't tell my girlfriends. Mm-hmm. I waited until a month after and then I invited about 10 girlfriends over and told them what had happened. Um, I had to hold it together. And, but I had this outlet right. and I had a safe space and I had people who were sharing with me. Right. They were supporting me. And it was, I mean, I, I say to people, it's, it's the greatest thing that ever happened, happened then and the worst thing that could ever happen. Because a marriage is, yeah. it's like a death. I understand. You, you know, it's not like a boyfriend. Yeah. It's no. a lifetime commitment. And it it was really painful. But those two things, it was this, this seesaw. Yeah. And it also, I wasn't nervous about the Tonys because 
all I took from that was the good. Yes. I didn't take the, oh, God, if I don't win. Right. Because it didn't matter. Yeah, I just was... had to, like, keep myself afloat. Right. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll tell you what. I mean, I understand uh, to a great extent. Uh, I, I, I was married for a long time and went through a divorce, so I, I understand uh the grief and loss and and particularly when you're the one responsible for screwing things up and whatnot um i totally get that but the uh but the byproduct of what you did uh what what's awesome to remember aside from the fact that you're sharing this with these people the the personal stuff that you're accessing into your that you're integrating, whether you're whether you're actively using a substitution or a sense memory, or whether it's just sort of informing your stuff to tell the story, the the great byproduct you have to remember that is happening is is the truth that you're putting into that story is being given to those people out there mm. who paid to see that, and all of that stuff that's happened to you, that's informing that, is being shared with you know 1500 other human beings who are now going to take that just like you did on 11th avenue in whatever year and it's there's a circle that that closes and so the the pain and the and the transition of one human being shared through the art and craft of another human being to a whole group of other people who are totally anonymous that's an incredible synergy of life. That's what we do. That's what we do. That's what we I do. Mean, every performance I've ever seen that has touched me, I know that those people communicated that to me in whatever medium. Right. We feel it in film. We feel it in television. We feel it in, in theater in probably a more visceral way. Yeah. Because there's less artifice, or maybe more artifice. <laughs> right. I guess that's the argument. But, but more, less proximity. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. 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 yeah, I mean you're right. You're yeah. lucky. <laughs> well, that that's a that's a beautiful thing, and 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 it's a blessing that you, as as difficult as those things happen in life, it's a it's a blessing that you had that thing to channel stuff through. Oh, hand to God saved my life. Wow, wow. Hand to God literally saved my life and literally moved me forward. Obviously, the job I have today. Right is is from that right, i right. it it led to so many things and it led me to appreciating things yeah i, I think as an actor everything in life is so fleeting i mean we're living in the middle of this pandemic and we haven't really addressed it except you know vaguely to say we've been thinking about things but it's nothing is forever no no even thank god this pandemic will end one day but you know life i mean relationships uh you know you asked earlier about sharing with family my parents have passed on i don't have anybody so i don't have family but theater is my family and my friends are my family and the the goodwill that i felt as you know the orphan with every actor who ever took an acting class with me everybody was happy because i just felt like me getting it was them getting it and i think they felt that same way yeah yeah 
you know. Yeah, no, I I feel it. I I, I all my parents are gone, and and there's this this constant search for like-minded souls to share things with that you normally wouldn't or you can't share with others that are have, have since gone so all right so let's talk about that next move because this is a big moment first of all we'll give helen Mirren props fine she wins good for okay. her good whatever she wins and it was great also the the one little fact too is that you were all nominated everybody in that show was nominated right pretty much not everybody not everybody but five, whole, of, five of you that's a lot of for a one thing a lot of people and all people who were first time nominees right first time nominees so the so the tony experience uh must have been a blast uh oh, going to the show going to the awards thing you know i'm you sure borrow th- fancy clothes yeah. and a guy with a you know a little brief case attached to his wrist brings you diamonds to wear oh my god and then, yeah so he literally comes to the theater you you borrow a ridiculously expensive dress i borrowed mine from thea and then um, don o'neill designed it and then i borrowed jewelry and this guy comes with a briefcase he literally opens it you pick out the diamonds you're wearing <laughs> half a million dollars oh my god you go to the tony's and then you leave the tony's and i i stay there until about 6 a.m. You know, there's, they start serving breakfast at 6 a.m. It's in these little pockets. It is as fabulous as they say. There's one big one at a hotel. Then there's another one at a ball, you know, there are three different ones and it's just unbelievable. So you're, you know, you're eating omelets at 5 a.m. And then you go home and then around noon, bing bong. And a girl just in a sundress and a jean jacket comes to get the diamonds. <laughs> he doesn't need this because nobody knows who you are. When they go to the theater, if people had their sure. eyes on those guys. But it's very funny that just this simple girl wow. in a little sundress and a That's jean jacket. Crazy. Just, you know, a little handbag, take my diamonds well, Let me back. get that half a million back. So, all right. So before we leave the Tony party, just any, any, did you get to talk to other nominees? Did you get to, was there any fun interaction where you're like a little starstruck and... Well, Helen Mirren, my entire thing. So they're live, and the whole deal is when the commercial break happens, there's just a second to run around. But the first commercial break, I ran to Helen Mirren to just say hi. (laughs) Could I get a picture? So I have my friend who's taking a picture. And so I think I've got my hand on the armrest leaning in for the picture. And as it turns out, I have my hand pretty high on her husband's thigh. <laughs> so there's a picture of me with my hand on Taylor Hackford's thigh, pretty inappropriately smiling next to Helen Mirren. So I have that frame. That's, awesome. That's great. That's awesome. <laughs> and then I got to meet Sting. And um, I got to meet him and I was very excited because his hand was awfully low on my back. And I thought that's got to be a once in a lifetime. That's so right. That. And, you know, he'll do that for hours. He's not, he, he can, he can keep that hand up there for a long, long time. He's real good at that. Well, you know, <laughs> it was, it was a big thrill. It just, it's so exciting because it literally is being in a movie. Everybody's dressed to the nines. You have a dress that you could never afford on. Right. It's, it's just every actor you want to see up close, you know, Judith Light. I'm a huge wow. Judith yeah. Light fan. So I got to run up to her and say, God, I hope I get to do a show with you. Right, right. Um, it was it was like that. And Ryan, are they and are, are they aware of of your work? Are they aware of Hand to God? And you know that's see, that's the cool part is when they that's go. That's the coolest part. Yeah. The, the coolest part. So the day that you go, the day that you're nominated, and you go to all those interviews, nobody knows who you are. <laughs> 
except the people who nominated you. So there is the committee. So you get to take a picture with them. So it's like half a dozen people. You don't know who they are, but they know you. So you know to be on your best behavior and just say thank you and smile because they could be someone. But at that point, you don't know who they are. And then it's, it's every actor and at the end of all these interviews, you're, you're by yourself being interviewed and they're just shuffling you in and out. And I really wanted to meet Helen. <laughs> and she, Helen, Helen! <laughs> and she's like, oh, and she turned around. And what was amazing to me, I said, it's me. No, I'm, I'm Geneva Carr, I got nominated too. And of course she had no idea who he was. And she just said, oh darling, enjoy every moment. <laughs> and I thought, Helen Mirren now knows who I am and she told me to enjoy it. So so I took that as an order and that was my first picture at the Tonys, commercial break. And you're so nervous. And and the cameras that they have pointing around you are really big. So you're there and you're like, oh God, smile. It's coming right right at me. So when they say your name and I didn't know because you're so nervous because of course I didn't think I was going to win. And then about 10 minutes before they announce, you think, oh God. What if I win? What if I win? <laughs> Who do I have to thank? Wow. So I didn't know that it was Bradley Cooper until I watched it later. Wow. He announced it, but wow. I was so nervous for those. And I was very lucky because my category was early. Mm, right. So I just got to release right. and have a good time. That's so and great. I just, I relaxed. I mean. So relaxing off the Tonys into the rest of your life, Geneva. When did, <laughs> so how soon does this new gig that we're, that you're cooking on now come into your life? Is it, is it hot off the heels of that? What do you, what do you, how long did you do Hand to God? How long, how long did that stay up? We did it on Broadway for 10 and a half months. Okay. So we almost a, about a month. Yeah. Get 10 and a half months. It was just under a year. Just under a year. Um, and I got... I, while I was doing Hand to God, I booked another uh, pilot and had shot it. Um, and I thought for sure that was going to be my big break. Right. Um, I had shot about eight pilots before that because pilots are amazing. They spend all this money making them. And, and, and are you doing them here? Or are you going to Los Angeles? What, what? I shot one there. Okay. Um, I had auditioned. I'd only shot one before. I'd auditioned. So I do this. I... I do another pilot that I think is going to go is it for uh, Nick at Night. Uh, Paul Rudnick wrote it. Um, Hamish Linkletter was in it. It was fabulous. I thought for sure. They gave me a Christmas present. I thought I'm in like Flynn. And it was taking a really long time to get accepted. And in the midst of that, I was still doing Hand to God. I got an audition for another job. And you're not supposed to audition if you if you're holding for something. Okay. But I actually had my agents find out um, that they were trying to get all the all the episodes written for this other show before they picked it up, which is a lot to ask of writers. You can't write, you know, a year or show. Yeah, right. Exactly. So I ended up going in for this audition um, for Bull, and the character is you know 30s blonde, and I get there, and it's every attractive 30-something actress in the city. And I thought, oh, please, never booking this. I'm way too old for this. This is ridiculous. And I get in there to the audition, and it's the director, Rodrigo Garcia, and Paul Atanasio, who wrote it. And I do my audition, and they say, where are you from? And I say, 
why? We can't figure out your accent. I said, what do you want it to be? I lived in 11 states. I lived in France. And Rodrigo says, do you speak pillow talk? And I said, yes, but no, thank you. I mean, I was really kind of aggressive and annoyed because I just felt like, why am I here? I'm never going to get it. And I think that kind of helped me. And I auditioned and obviously it went well. And then I was seeing a show on my night off and at intermission, I checked my phone when I was at someone else's show and I got a call saying they want you to screen test, but without those glasses, because I wear glasses. So I had, you know, right. learn my lines by heart at the time. I didn't have contacts and just try to, you know, and so I did it again. And I'm convinced that's why they gave Dr. Bull my glasses. because My glasses look like Dr. That's Bull's. right. Yeah. There you go. Jason Bull. <laughs> I like that. That's a good look. I like those glasses. Those are cool. I get self-conscious about it because no, Michael Weather cool. hates my glasses. So, <laughs> so wait, so, wait. So time out a second here. I heard something. Mm-hmm. What? Let's go back a few sentences. I think, uh-huh. you, know, I think you know what I'm going to ask. Do you yeah. speak pillow talk? Mm. What the fuck kind I of did line? not know you were going to ask that. What kind of line? What was that about? What? Well, he. I said I spoke French, and right. everybody knows that that's how you learn French. <laughs> and so I was like, Rodrigo. Rodrigo wow. Garcia is an absolutely genius director, and he could tell right away to get the best work out of me. He had to make fun of me. Okay. So he was unbearable. Michael Weatherly still makes jokes about it. After every take, he'd go, great job. God, great job. God, Russ, great job. Geneva, let's go to the next one. <laughs> I was like, what? You didn't say anything to me. He, he in- just was teased, teased, teased. He instinctively knows you need that smack in the head to get things going, yeah. to get the engine going. <laughs> so, all right. So now, boom, you're a Tony-nominated actress, and you get the big CBS network episodic. Dying breed. These are one of the last to be made, we yeah. have to admit, in our industry. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a different... It's good in a lot of ways now with all the... Uh, you know, the, the avenues to go on the Netflix and Hulu's and whatnot. There's so much original programming, but network TV, that's pretty cool. Steady gig. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it's sort of like going to college. <laughs> Why is that? Well, this is my, I'm, I'm in my fifth year now. Right. Um, and it's being a guest star and being a series regular Totally different experience. Okay, good. I want I want you to really tell me what that's about. You are not prepared to be a series regular after being a guest star. I had been a guest star probably 40 times, maybe more. It is a totally different experience. And there's a huge learning curve. All right. So and- for folks who don't know, a guest star for when you're watching television, you know, the mom, you know, law and order, the mom who's lost her son, you know, she's on for a one episode thing. Right. And it's her story and whatever, or she's the victim or she, or whatever the show is. But usually it's one episode. Maybe it's like a two episode arc, but your guest star is I, one I thing. I did up to three arc. I, I played Faith Yancey. I, I mean, I played a character based on Nancy Grace for Law and Order Criminal 10. Right. I think we did it eight times. Oh, right. I remember that character. I remember you doing that. That's right. I know. I saw one. I, where's my biopic? I mean, I'm ready. <laughs> um, so being a guest star, you get to come in. You have to know your lines verbatim. There is a level of fear. Um, and you're shot out of a cannon. Mm. And usually you have to do all the heavy lifting with the crying. Mm. A lot of the shows. Sure. So... 
I had learned how to do that very well, and I was reliable. I'd learned that you can't do too, for me, I can't do too much chit chat with the, the series regulars because I have to cry and mm. I get nervous and it's, it's a very difficult thing. Um, that is why on our show, uh, Michael and I make a commitment and actually all the actors do to do everything we can to make those guest stars feel comfortable because it's very difficult mm. to just have to fly in and do it. Right. And you're just guided. A PA takes you to where you need to be, picks you up and brings you back, shows you where the food is. There's just, there's very little margin for error right. and they make it easy for that to happen. But when you're a series regular, there's, there's a weird thing where they treat you so well that I, I don't know how to explain it, but I literally am treated like a princess. <laughs> uh, it's, I am like the popular girl in high school with no effort. I mean, you know, they call me queen. Um, oh. Everybody wants to figure out what my favorite snack is. I oh. mean, people say it's cause I'm nice, but I don't buy that. They are, they literally make my life amazing. Wow. Every person that works there. And I know everybody, the craft service people, all the PAs, the crew, the set decorators. And it, it takes a long time. There are still people I don't know. <laughs> but damn it, if I don't try, because it's, it's hard. There are, at any given moment, there are over 100 people on set. And there are 400 people that are employed by the show. That's incredible. Does, yeah, it, help, is, does it help that... Uh that your lead um michael came he came from another one right he came from uh cs he was on cs for 13 C years right, a long time on that show with uh mark long Arnold. time and that was his fourth show i think so his it, other shows, he was in dark angel right. um he was another show with christina applegate i don't remember what it was called um he, yeah he was my guru he told me he told me how to make it work he he helped with things like my just my nerves and how I learn things and everybody does it differently. So, you know, I would say that our, our leads, even though we're all series regular, Michael Weatherly and Freddie Rodriguez, and they're totally different. Michael is Mr. Funny Guy. He's loose. He's improvisational. He's silly. He has an amazing memory to learn very quickly. Mm. Um, then and there, but he can also, if he forgets his words, he just sort of improvises. Mm. Freddie is like word perfect. He's super serious, <laughs> you know, never loses. He does lose focus sometimes, okay. but he's super serious. And I'm sort of in between, but what Michael and I like to do when we have a scene together, like last night, he called me, I'm not even in his scene today, but we tore the scene apart. That's so cool dissected the scene to what every single word means. And if you have a problem, like this is crazy, but I, in one scene I had to say something like, you know, her mom is crackhead and I wasn't okay with that. Mm -hmm. It's not because her mom had a drug issue, but I called the showrunner and I said, crackheads were what people, we called people in the eighties. Yeah. If you want to call her a meth head, if that's what you mean, but I don't know that that's what you mean. Right. And sometimes the lingo, or if there's grammatically something I want to correct, right. um, it's network television. So you can't do it on your own. You have to go through the channels. But last night he and I dissected a scene he was in because sometimes it's such fast work 
you don't have a group of people helping you figure out what the the fight is in the scene. And so we spent, you know, half an hour on the phone dissecting the scene. That's great. So, so that's, again, that illustrates the difference between the two worlds that you've worked through, which is theater where there's, you know, you get your six weeks or however many of rehearsal of really working through what you're doing. And then all those performances and film and television, it's like, come prepared with your, your action and your objectives and your you know there's not a lot of let's play around with this um no so they don't we, have the time they don't have the luxury of that no the money's going i mean anthony window. hopkins did an interview for the new yorker this week about his film the father did yes, you see i that? haven't seen it yet i'm dying to see it I, I, he's my oh, he's my Jimmy. favorite he's my man I, that's my favorite guy so. oh you you are gonna love him beyond yeah. belief everyone in the movie is amazing what's interesting is i saw that show on broadway i had auditioned for that show it was right after hand of god mm-hmm. and i auditioned for it Catherine irby got it mm-hmm. she was from law and order criminal intent right, i worked right, a right. times. um it, it had a very different resonance. Um, it has a different re- resonance. I think it's a much better movie. Yeah, I think it, the, st- the plot itself lends itself to cinematic. Well, ghost. I, what's interesting is the guy who wrote it actually directed it. Mm-hmm. Um, blanking on his mm-hmm. name, but um, I think he is a phenomenal film director. Apparently it's his first. Yeah. But he uses set design in a way that's exceptional. And it hits an attra- And Anthony said in this interview, they said, what's your trick? And he said, learn your lines. <laughs> that's right. And it's really true. And in television, when people ask me for TV, how do you do the best job? I know that now moving forward, I will be better at auditioning. When I used to audition for television and film, I always know the first line and the last line. Because it's really important not to be doing this on the first line or the last line. You want to be here for both. Right. But for for the show, sometimes we don't get lines until the night of. I've actually gotten scenes where I got them the morning of. Wow. But I I have my tricks, and I I've had my memory tested. I know what works. So I work like a dog to know the lines. Because for me when I know the lines is when I can breathe a little bit. Sure. The worst is remembering a line. It's so much better. And and Michael, how he learns his lines, why he wants to discuss it with me, he believes, and I think it's true, if you know the reason you're saying it. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So what's your, what's the, for folks, the actual craft of it, what is the process, like a, the week's worth of work, or, or like you, you get a, a thing the night before, so, Let's let's say you're not getting something that day of, but what's your typical sort of work process? I get the script, I, I learn it on Monday night, I go and I on my call time is this, you know, what's the deal? In a normal television show that would be a case, but Glenn Gordon Karen is our showrunner, and he's famous for this, so I'm not divulging any kind of an upsetting secret. He writes as he goes. Okay. He has a team of writers. But then he has to have the last say. He has to, because it's his vision, mm. it's how he needs to focus. Right. He he rewrites scenes, sometimes to a great degree, sometimes barely at all. I've done episodes where it was barely rewritten and then other episodes where it's totally rewritten. Mm. But he, he likes to work with his team of writers that way. Um, they adore him. And... That's just how he does it. So, what does it, it? So, do for to you as an actor? What is your what is 
It is really challenging because when we start an episode, we have no idea how it's ending. So we've worked with guest stars where I'll say, were you the bad guy? Did you get the last scene? Because sometimes they give it to the bad guys or they give it to the guest stars so they know. But we literally do not know. I feel mostly for the guest stars because they're not as comfortable. When I first started working on Bull, if I didn't know my line, I would improvise because I thought it was like stage. Mm. And they said, nope, don't do that. Because it doesn't, we have to get it word perfect. A network agrees on words. Sure. Yeah. So There's a zillion people above the line. They're making all these cooks, making these. Uh, even when we get it last minute, it's been okay by a group of people. Yeah. And we can't change it. So. Uh, I learned that I, I also learned that if someone, if I'm correcting someone, when someone says, how are you? Well, how are you? How do you think I am? If someone says, where are you? How do you think I am? You still have to say your line correctly right? because still use just you. Right, right, right. So for what we do, we get our lines, I would say a maximum of three days before we're filming. Like I called you the other day yeah. because I didn't know. Right. So I got my lines yesterday for tomorrow. Okay. So Two extra scenes. <laughs> I wrapped on this episode, and now I found out I'm in two scenes, which I love. Oh, that's cool. So I'm going to learn my lines, um, come hell or high water. <laughs> I do it. I tape myself saying them, and I repeat with myself. Other people use something called learn, Line Learner, which is an app where you listen to the other person's line, but I don't care what you're saying. Wow, I've I never heard of that. that. I've never heard of that one. Wow. Line no, Learner? Line Learner? Yeah, no, I never heard of it. Everybody keeps telling me, but I have my little tricks and it's how I do it. I wow. just make sure I hear myself saying it with no intonation. Right. And, and this, uh, this, this thing, isn't this the one it's based on, um, Dr. Phil early life or something, or does he have any, does he have any input in the, the storyline? Like, does that, yeah, I would think so. Right. He's kind of the, I, I wish, I don't know to what degree, but I know that their episodes are based on exactly what he did oh, wow. because I was the first person cast in the series. And really? then Michael came later and I was really worried that he was going to replace me. First of all, to think that any one person could have that kind of power is kind of crazy, but wow. You know, I had never met him. The first time I met him was after we'd all been cast and we were doing a table read for the network. Wow. So so yeah. your character was cast before the bull character I'm was cast? I'm not a real person. Wow. I am based on Dr. Phil, his right-hand woman. Wow. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Oh, he told me. One of the greatest things is I, I never got to see her. I don't know what she looks like. I haven't contacted her. I don't even know her name. He okay. didn't tell me. Okay. Um. But apparently, she would wear um, very attractive clothes and very short skirts. And sometimes judges would say, not in my courtroom today. <laughs> and she would have to, you know, cover her legs. Do but feel- she, was, she was a woman not afraid to be a woman. Okay. All right. Do you, do you feel, uh, is there, did that like, is there a responsibility to that? Where it's like, oh, this, is this a real person or am I an amalgamation of real people? Or like, do you think about that? I wish that had taken, that had been part of creating the character, but it, it wasn't. Okay. Originally, Phil Atanasio, um, Paul Atanasio wrote the series. Hmm. And he wrote, um, what's the one that Edie Falco did last season that should not? Tommy. Uh, oh, he wrote oh. Tommy. Um, he wrote... Um, God, what's the one about the doctor who was sick? Oh, uh, a house? 
Yes, he did house as well. So he's a master. But originally in his mind, my character was kind of a mother hen nagging everyone to Mm. make sure everything got done. And the network had so many opinions about my outfits (laughs) that in the pilot, it's a little wackadoo. Yeah. But then later on, um, they had asked me what I wanted to wear. And I told the costume designer, I don't want to wear suit jackets. I'm a little woman. I want to be feminine. Mm-hmm. I I wear tight clothes in my life. That's what I want. So she dressed city. And they let me be who I wanted to be. And believe me, there were a lot of opinions. Like uh, from the network, they'd say, she looks like she's going to a cocktail party. Like, this is not a cocktail dress. <laughs> this is a business dress. I mean, it was... Interesting. But a lot of people were supporting me. And so I got to develop the character the way I'd like. Now we have a new costume designer and she's, you know, put her own mark on it because your character grows every year. That's what's fun playing the same person going five years now. Now, let me ask you this question, because that's really interesting is that you you as an actor get to develop a character and start to grow into a character like you know if people saw the first episode of the sopranos they wouldn't those people were different by the time they got to the season three four or five whatever so you get to be in this process where you're creating and, and you're working with other artists costume designers production designers directors uh, not directors really writers and stuff to develop this no, character. Directors. We have a di- different director every that's, single well, that's what i was going to ask is it isn't the same in television it, mm-hmm. it's 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 sort of a template of the program like this is how we do this show and then directors come in and kind of manage that boat so what is that like when you have a different person every day every coming in See, nobody told me that when i got to be a series regular i just showed up i wish that someone had said here's a handbook here's what happens but you do get a different director every single time you have a producer and a producing director and that producing director directs two to three episodes a season we have usually 23 to 24 episodes a season this year because of covid we're only going to have 16. Mm. um so eric stoltz is our producing director this year Uh, cool amazing yeah amazing he is definitely an actor's director and he is all about process so he loves discussing Mm. it and but some directors are not like that we had another director who all he cared about were camera angles. And in the beginning, I can't say his name because it's not terribly flattering, but in the beginning, Michael had said, you need to take the script home every night. And then when we air, you can watch it and see what they kept. And because of course I thought it was my fault if they didn't keep something. And so I mentioned this to the director and he says, oh yeah, no, we don't, I don't do that. He said, I just figure you can act. I don't care about your performance. I'm looking at the camera angle. Right, right, right. And I thought, wow, yeah. you don't even listen to us. But it, it, there are a million different kinds of directors. Now, what I will say is in this show, we have found our niche. So Dennis Smith is someone who I think has directed over a dozen. Um, Mike Smith is another director whom I had worked with on Law and Order Criminal Intent. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Bethany, I can't remember what is Bethany's last name. This is Rooney, who is an amazing director, who was our director, our producing director for two seasons. Mm-hmm. She's been back to direct. Um, and Eric is now directing. So we have so there's a our group of, yeah. And they come back. Carl Seaton is directing now. He was here before. Kevin Berlandi was here. So what happens is we get the people we like back. Right, right. I always nice. felt it was it was odd for a director for television because you're, it's like, hey, don't, 
don't step outside of what we do here. You know, I know you want to go handheld down the street and do some funky stuff, but that's not how we do it on Law and Order. That's not how we do. Like, there's a there's a thing. This is this is the, the way this show looks, and I wonder what kind of creative uh, freedom they always have within that box. That is a good question, and I asked the same thing of Bethany Rooney, and Bethany wrote a book about. Um, acting, writing, directing television. And I buy it for all my young actor friends so they understand what network TV is. Mm. And you are right. There is like, this is how we do it. And every director comes in knowing that these are the boundaries. They've they've watched a ton of the show if they're smart. And then they also try things. So the episode we're working right now, Carl Seaton directed. It's a second time. He directed a couple seasons ago. And he tried some different things in, in the series. I play the woman that created the matrix. I'm always looking at these monitors <laughs> and he tried some different things, some kind of funky camera angles that are coming from the side that are moving. Mm. Um, our showrunner uh, usually directs two episodes a season, but he's not able to do uh, the second one this year because of COVID. He did direct our first one, uh, our opening episode this season where we broke the fourth wall. What? It was so intense that after I finished my scene where I had to break the fourth wall, I went into my dressing room and cried. Wow. I'll tell you what, there was probably a lot of notes before that decision was made. Well, (laughs) you know, Glenn is the top of the notes. Exactly. That's yeah. So if he says it goes, it goes. I will tell you it was one of, so he breaks the mold to answer that question. Glenn breaks the mold all the time. He's had singing on the show. Chris Jackson, who was in Hamilton's on our show, oh, cool. he was singing in an episode. And the episode that we did, we lip synced. Oh, wow. And we broke the fourth wall. And it was so when Glenn directed, he, he wanted me to turn in my chair and address the audience. And his direction was these people watch you every week. You're so grateful. Just tell them that you've missed them and that you're there for them. So, you know, I do my thing. And he said, Gosh, you you look a little stiff. I don't know what to tell you. Can you can you be bigger? Like, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, I was big, and I was like, "How big do you want it to be?" And he laughed, and that was the take that we used. That's awesome. So he's creative. Sure. The other directors, they do. It's hard for them, but every director, because they're working for their next job. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. They are, they try to add a little something. Right. I don't know that it always lasts. Yeah. But But that's gotta can, be that's gotta be fun for you when those things when they can it's like because because it is a job and it is sort of a, a regular thing, it's nice to inject some some new stuff into it every day. It can month. be a grind. Yeah. Um, I am very lucky that, you know, season one, because a lot of it was around the screens, I, you know, I sometimes worked I mean I I'd worked up to a seventy hour week. Wow. You can work crazy hours in television. We've since then, we know what we're doing in a better way. So the days have gotten shorter and Michael has small children. So we've tried to accommodate that. And now because we have seven regulars on the show, Mm. it ebbs and it flows. I'll get a couple episodes where I'm in every single day. And then I'm three days, two days, four days. It's sort of. This is a great gig, man. This is a great gig. (laughs) I mean, this is a really cool gig. 
I gotta say. And they, they make me treats. We have this um this caterer. I love this chimichurri sauce she makes. <laughs> she makes me a jar of it to take home. <laughs> I, I wanna like package it and sell it. It's so good. That's awesome. All right. So I'm not gonna keep you too much longer. I'm gonna wrap it up here a little bit. But two things. One you mentioned when he said turn to the audience because they see you every day uh, or every week. Um, what is that practically like in your life? Do you do you are you aware that you're in people's living rooms and are they making you aware? Are the people do you have fans? Do you have people that recognize you now? Do you, you I mean does that happen to you now in this sphere of your career? Well, I'll be honest. The average age for network television. <laughs> right. Um, so yeah, take me to an old folks' home. I'm a celebrity. Uh, in most situations, uh, no. You know, I can online date if I so choose. That's that's how unrecognizable I feel. It's occasional. It's occasional. But um, you know what? That's still the, to me. That sounds like a pretty good part of the gig. You got the great gig, but nobody. So I recently moved. I moved right before the pandemic, and I will say I brought the median age down by about twenty years, just <laughs> single-handedly. Um, so in this building, I am a big celebrity. Right. So um, there are a couple people who leave me a note every Tuesday morning to tell me what they thought of the show on Monday night <laughs> on my door, which is very sweet. Um, so, no, I, I am just living my best life as a working actor, uh, making a very generous living. And it's and you amazing. and you and your cats are enjoying that whole uh, <laughs> that whole scene. All right. So fi last little thing. Uh, you've been just a delight, as I thought I knew you would be. What? I mean, it's a great gig. But what are the other? Are you still looking to do other things? Do you want to go back to the theater? Do you? Are you looking at film stuff? Like what other stuff you want to do? I just had an audition for a film that I'd be very interested in doing. I can't say what it is because they make you sign sure. an NDA. But. It would be a challenge. Mm. Um, Moritz von Stuppenagel is one of my favorite directors. And recently I talked to him if there's any way that on hiatus we could do a play. Mm. Um, I love doing new theater. I would love to try Tennessee Williams. And he ah, knows yeah, yeah. Um, have so you ever, have you ever done any Tennessee Williams? No. I got to do it very. I got to do it in little tiny theater productions, but way back, oh, I got to do a play. I did, yeah, I did a Cat on a Tin Roof. I was brick a long time ago, and I got to direct and do Stanley in Streetcar. That was one of my favorite. Oh things. my yeah. God, I see Stanley totally. Well, well, well I that's that's the one I want to do. Yeah, that's that's well, well, the one I want to do. Right, you're ready. You're ready to rock that one right I'm now. So, <laughs> all right, so I'll play. That'd be awesome. I, I think be, network television is nine and a half to 10 months a year. So very little time. Right. So they're, they're golden handcuffs that are a joy. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course I'm looking for other projects and you know, you never know. You never know. Was the streetcar? Are we doing streetcar? I'm ready. Well, I don't think I don't think I can pull that any, off anymore. I'm a little too old for it'd be a different um, kind of Stanley now. <laughs> you know, it's a, I found a regional theater because I swear to God, I want to do the roles that nobody's going to let me do. They're going to hire Jillian Anderson, but I want to do streetcar. Right, exactly. So Geneva, you the gypsy who uh, who <laughs> hit eleven different states and and two different countries and four different languages and everything else and uh, you know uh what what's your advice to the to the young actor who who's who's the who can look at the nobody who got the tony nomination and the big series like what what is 
what's the what do you tell them starting out nothing in life is easy i was a banker before and that was hard too <laughs> i never was going to reach the top of that i wasn't i wasn't determined if you really love performing if you can see yourself doing nothing else give a hundred percent your your instrument take care of yourself get help um stay clean stay happy stay healthy emotionally and give it your all never take breaks never take time give it a hundred percent and it can happen and it can take a really really long time but if you know it's what you really want the journey is just as much fun as the destination. That's awesome. That's right on the money. Right on the money. Well, Geneva Carr, with that awesome name and that awesome personality, thank you so much for uh, for, thank you so for much. I learned a lot. I, it's so great to see uh, uh, a true working artist how they manage their craft and how they live their life and their business and, and how they got there. It's it's just great that you let me in and you let me in on some really wonderful emotional stuff that I think is important to share with artists and, and how they can use that as part of what they communicate to the rest of the world. So I really appreciate this time you gave me. Thank you so much.